Hello and welcome back to the Rugby Paper podcast. As the Premiership season has drawn to a close, today we're taking the opportunity to look back on the career of one of Bath's greatest ever fullback. Nick Abendanen joins the columnist and myself, and we also pay tribute to the Rugby Paper's founder and editor-in-chief, David Emery, who very tragically passed to the weekend. So, the pace of the season has relented somewhat, on the field at least. Off the field, there's obviously still plenty to, to discuss. Um, yeah, Premiership season's ended, and... I thought we'd take this week to look back on the career of someone who announced their retirement from their stellar rugby career uh, a couple of months ago now. It's legendary Bath fullback Nick Abendanen, uh, 17-year career, done and dusted, and he joins us today. Where are you right now, Nick? I'm actually down in um, at my parents-in-law's house in uh, Portsmouth. Okay, for how long? Yeah. Uh, until Sunday night, then we go back to France. Is this just a little pop over to the UK to see some loved ones? Uh, we we came over for a friend of my wife's wedding, um, which was nice. So we uh, we left our two eldest children with my parents in France, and they're coming back on the ferry tonight. Um, and we've just had a third little baby um, who we gave to my mother-in-law, and so we had a, an, an evening free of uh, of children, which was nice for me and my wife. <laughs> um, and then uh, we've got the 80th birthday of uh, my father-in-law on Saturday, and then we leave on Sunday. My God, it's all going on. So retirement's not exactly quiet then. <laughs> uh, it's not been quiet at all. It's definitely not been uh, how I imagined it in my head uh, two or three months ago. Because <laughs> two or three months ago, um, I was going to completely stop playing. I was going to take a year off uh, just to you know spend time with the family, uh, try and get my golf handicap as low as possible and enjoy a bit of the the Brittany, uh, the Brittany uh, sunshine and coastline. And... Um, Within the space of a week, uh, I had accepted an offer at Bayonne to go and do some coaching there. We've just finished a renovation um, in Van on a house. So we moved out of our rental place a week ago into a house that's not finished. And then we can have to move from there two weeks' time down to Bayonne. So it's, uh, all that with the little seven-week-old baby has not been easy. Yeah, wow. So I'm guessing no golf whatsoever is being played then. That will have to be a long-term project. Well, luckily enough, I've managed to squeeze a little round in with a mate uh, in West Hill uh, tomorrow night. So I'm going to I'm gonna enjoy that, uh, enjoy that. But I've not played any golf for, uh, for about a year, which has been very depressing. <laughs> you, well, could, you, could have, you could have spent your year off, Nick, doing a bit of sprint training in an attempt to get as fast as Matt Perry. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is true. I think Matt's probably faster, not the sprint training at uh, at chopping pints than he is at at, um, at running fast these days. But um, yeah, it's one guy who I, I always try and catch up with when I go back to Bark, and he's great value. Yeah, they'd be pretty quick if there was a bar at the end of the hundred meters, wouldn't it? Yeah. Exactly, a, a bar rather than a tape, and Perry wins Manzane. <laughs> <laughs> So when you retired, was it always going to be irrespective of the Bayonne offer? Obviously, congratulations on that. Um, was Were you going to stay in France regardless? I was going to stay in France, yeah. Um, we've, well, we've, we've loved our time over in France over the last eight years. Um, you know, we've, we've had three kids over here in France and um, we want to stay in France for, uh, you know, as long as possible so that all the kids are, are bilingual. Um and then, yeah, at some point we'll make our way back to England, but uh, not sure, not sure when. 
how's your French? Yeah, French is is, is good now. Um, you know, I've managed to crack it, and uh, it's take it took me a good four four years to be able to. Uh, from year one to four, I was you know fighting demons and uh, was saying I'm never ever going to be le- able to learn this language, but. Yeah, it's funny. It just sort of comes to you. It comes to you um, at some stage, and it just clicks into place. And now, um, yeah, no problems. Correct. Right. Well, I get. I guess you'll get to the point as well where I don't know. Maybe you're at this point. Your your children will overtake you in their French ability, just because obviously the earlier you start learning, the better you become at the language, right? Oh yeah. I mean, uh, that's already happening at the moment. My seven year old um, daughter is, is constantly correcting our French, um, which is just embarrassing. Uh, but um, it's also it's also nice as well at the same time when you have to, you know, come up with a word that you've never heard before and she knows it and uh, she helps you out a little bit. So, yeah, yeah that's pretty My parents are Dutch and they both speak fluent Dutch, but they never could be bothered to speak it to us when we were kids. And I've always held a grudge against them for that. <laughs> I think giving, uh, giving giving your children another language um, from a young age is a, is, a, is, a, is a very important gift if you're yeah. if you're able. And so hopefully they can use that now to um, to become the linguists. So we're going to try and get them to Spanish next, and uh, and yeah, I think it's a very useful tool to have for the future. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, I'm a languages student at university, so I, I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree. Oh, yeah. um, but that's a conversation for another day. Let's um, just focus on the retirement decision itself. Now there was a retirement sort of illusion two years ago. And then you, or three years ago now, sorry, because time flies, uh, you you turned on that. Talk about, first of all, that U-turn and then why you felt that, you know, I, I know it was related to a, tall, a bicep injury, why you felt it was actually time this time to to call it a day. Well, yeah, I mean, when uh, I finished at uh, Claremont, um, I still had a plus one on the contract. So ideally, I was, I was hoping that they were going to... Um, they were going to allow me to do that plus one, and then I was going to retire after that. Um, at the time, I didn't really, I hadn't, didn't watch any pro D rugby. Um, didn't really know anything about the competition. Um, it's funny, you know, when you're in the top fourteen, that's all you watch. And if, when now I've been in the pro D for the last three years, that's um, that's all I watch. I don't really follow much top fourteen rugby. So, yeah, I was hoping to get that plus one, but they never, they never gave it to me. So then COVID hit, and suddenly I was in a position where. Um, I was almost forced into retirement, even knowing that I still had a lot of rugby left in me. Um, clubs just weren't offering any contracts to uh, to, to players, and um, there was so much uncertainty around around what was going to happen that um, yeah, I found myself in a position where I had two offers from uh, clubs back in England, London Irish and Leicester, um, and I had the only the only offer I had from France was from Van. And um, yeah, we decided to just keep the French adventure going, and uh, I'm pretty thankful for them to that they that they gave me the chance to continue to play. I guess the staying in France um, in Prodida is testament to the fact that your decision to go to France was absolutely a good one. I know you've gone on the record saying it was the best in your career. Um, is that still how you look at it now? Yeah, one hundred percent. I think. Um, all the experiences that I have, obviously, I've been very, very fortunate in the fact that I was involved in a in a fantastic Claremont side that competed every single year for um, you know semi-finals. They were played in all the big games, so that makes it a lot uh, more enjoyable. 
that's the reason we play is to play in those sort of games. Um, but even even coming to, down to the Prodi Deux and, and playing for Van, uh, it gave me a bit of a new lease of life. The guys, the guys here, you know, that they're, they're all very good players, but they just haven't had their they just haven't had their chance to sort of you know prove that they can play in the top fourteen. They're all very grounded, work really hard, and um, I, th- I think that the Prodi Deux competition is outstanding. It's um, you know it's 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 uh, it's it's a very very tough physical, but enjoyable competition and um yeah without a shadow of a doubt the eight years in uh in in france have definitely elipsed anything that i've uh that i experienced in england nick uh, take us into that wonderful mad world of clermont and stad michelin i mean it's always been a favorite trip for us british journos and i remember going there when they were actually clement frond and they used to have a big tent at one end with the bar in and all the players used to serve behind the bar for the first hour after the match, and you just got the impression of a fantastic rugby community even then. And they weren't a great team then, but they were a great club. And uh, what did you make of it when you parachuted into that place? I was, uh, I, I mean, are you, are you, I got I got sent, obviously, that you're going to ask some questions uh, at the end of, you know, short five questions. But, um, you know, when you say, like, what's your favourite stadium? Like not being biased or anything, I've played in a lot of the very, very um, good stadiums. But the the Marseille Michelin is it's um, it's something like I've never experienced before. When uh, especially on some of the the earlier getting in, in the first year I was there, fourteen fifteen, um, you know, in some of the the Champions Cup games, it's just uh, it's a colossal experience of. Uh, it, those sort of uh, every single time you run out and you're getting those those tingly um, you know butterfly feelings and you're sort of sort of having to pinch yourself that you're actually involved in in a in a in a team this this big and this much loved by by um, by the supporters. I mean, obviously there's lots of other teams that have great supporters, but uh, there was something special about um, about the Claremont supporters that they. They just lived and died for for the team. They just uh, did anything out of their way to to make sure that um, we were loved and uh, and yeah, the, the experiences there were. It was difficult at the start because no, I don't think anyone in Claremont knew who who I was when I when I came uh, came from Bath. So I needed to work bloody hard to prove prove myself. And um, you know, I sort of knew that uh, the first judge. They're going to all judge you on your performances on the pitch first of all. So I didn't take an off season. I trained as hard as I could to get in the best shape possible, and thankfully that paid off because you know as soon as you're an international and you come and um, your performances on the pitch are are good, they accept you with open arms. Um, and I really became close uh, with a lot of the supporters there, and it was it was like having a huge uh, huge family um, around me for those six years. And anything special behind the scenes, you know, um, Monday to Friday training that was markedly different from from bath times. Well, I mean, we we did we did a lot of sort of um, open training sessions where um, it would be like a captain's run or um, you know a, the afternoon session on a Thursday before a big game, and so they'd open up the 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 Marcel Michelin. We'd do it in on the um, on the pitch there. And I mean, you're getting you know four thousand 
people coming and watching and watching you train, which is which is mental, really. I mean, you wouldn't. Uh, I don't think that, you know you might get a man and his dog at the rec, but he w- wouldn't be there watching the rugby. He's just walking walking his dog on the recreation ground. <laughs> um, so I mean, even that, like, uh, you can see how influential the players are in terms of being role models for the kids and how mad they will go and. Um, yeah, it's just a, it's just a different kettle of fish, really, out here. You you you've you've been in obviously in in that in in the fires of Claremont Rugby. Um, you're you're about to go into another um, uh, rugby environment, which is very particular to itself the 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 Basque rugby environment, where passions are, are pretty high and the the temperatures can be quite hot. Um, and you've also been up in Brittany, which is sort of broadly been a non-rugby area for, for however long but it's a big it's a big part of France for rugby to capture eventually so those of us who are looking at a dwindling premiership over here are we right to be as envious of the French scene as some of us are with its four professional leagues and its its extraordinarily committed support and the big TV deal and everything else that's going on over there because you're going in in the opposite direction on the face of it, to a lot of other rugby environments around the world. Yeah, I mean, you're you're spot on with that. I mean, it, it is it's so mad to me to um, have been involved with uh, with this van team. When when I first came to Van, they you know they had these um, porter cabins and uh, these tents that they put up as a gym, and you know it had the proper sort of amateur feel about it of training, you know, in the dungeons that we used to back in the day. Even the first year that I came to to Claremont, the, their whole training facility was underneath the left uh, stand as you come out the um, out the tunnel. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a proper old school gym, you know, where it's sort of. Uh, you know, you can imagine the stories. If the if the walls could tell stories, they would um, they would be there for years. But um, and then last year, um, you know, Van have built this uh, training center, which we moved into this uh, this season. Um, and I mean, it's just the most unbelievable facility I've ever seen. It's in terms of comparing it to the Claremont. The Claremont one was outstanding, but I think the Van one has has um, surpassed um, the Claremont one. And I can't understand in my in my mind how a pro team is getting that sort of type of investment um to be able to build that sort of infrastructure when as you say in england you're having these huge clubs like wasps um, london irish uh, worcester just you know ceasing to exist and so yeah obviously there's a lot of controversial characters at the top of the french uh, the french um, ffr you know but you know, all the Jagan side, Bernard Port has done a fantastic job in um, putting in the foundations into the French grassroots level so that they can get to where they are now with sustainability and with a lot of interest from television and stuff like that to keep uh, keep investment coming into the game. And you can see that, um, you know, it's just worlds apart. It's... Um, you know, every single game in the Pro D2 is televised. Um, you've got um, you've you've got constant uh, support. I mean, we're we're selling out the the Rabin every week in Brittany, which is very very new to rugby, with eleven thousand eleven thousand people. 
Um, and yeah, I just can't imagine that's that's happening uh, in the championship uh, in the UK. So there's definitely things that the RFU need to look at and how they can, how can they, how they can improve. But yeah, it's a difficult scenario, really. And, and, and would, it be, would it be stretching a point, Nick? Just on just on this, this subject, would it be stretching a point to say that if if and this is a long term pro- a long term project, but if Van get it right in terms of their marketing and their involvement of a big non-rugby audience, which becomes more rugbyfied, if you like, as as their success grows, is the idea Van to be a sort of another La Rochelle where you just you know, um, it's another West, a West Coast, um, a West Coast side. Um, is there a potential there to, to? I mean, you, you came pretty close to top fourteen um, promotion anyway um, this year, but uh, yeah, the they're sitting on a they're sitting on a pot of gold there because um, you know they're the only professional uh, like team in Brittany who. You know, have potential to make that step up to the top fourteen. They've got the infrastructure in place. They've got um, they've got the the president and the vice president who are willing to to put in the money um, to create a squad that's going to compete to get to the top fourteen. And as you said, you know, I mean, two years ago when we lost to Biritz in the, the semi final, we should never have lost uh, that game. We lost in the last you know on in the eighty third minute to try um, in the last seconds, and then this this year. You know, even though Oynax deserved to to go up, we we were in a position where we could have won that game um, in the semi final there at Oynax, and um, yeah, they've got a solid a solid base of supporters, and if you've got that, then you're onto a winner. And people travel from North Brittany, you know, West Brittany to come and watch Van play, and it's getting bigger and bigger. The more success the team has, the more people are interested in doing it. They've got businesses who are itching to to become sponsors of the club now. And so, yeah, it's it's definitely a, a bright future for, for Van. I think if they can get a couple of things right, um, then I wouldn't be surprised in, you know, three, four years if, the, if you'll see them uh, in the top 14. So, Nick, just to um, go back to the, the, the state-of-the-art training centre, where did the money come from? Uh, well, as with as with a lot of uh, clubs in France, um, they won't they won't be able to do much as we found with Biritz unless they've got the mairie on their side. Yeah. Um, so the the town of um, of Van, the mairie of Van, is a huge advocate of trying to grow the club and grow um, Van as a, as a as a sporting entity. Um, so I mean they are, are the primary. Uh, giver of um of donations and and money to to the club so they built you know the synthetic uh pitch that we train on during the winter sometimes um you know they they've just uh, redone the, the one of the stands in the rabines so now we've increased um the the potential uh, spectator count to i think it was before 9000 out to 11 and a half thousand um and yeah so with their backing, they obviously then put in money to the training facility as well. And um, I met the the main sponsor, um, Dosi. That's a big um, alimentary uh, company. Um, they it's called Dosi Park, and they uh, they have been um, sort of the main the main big company that's put in money. So is it is it uh, is it almost uh, as if it's a community hub as well? Then, yeah, hundred percent. 
I think, um, yeah, they, the the mayor of of, uh, of Van luckily is a big rugby fan. Um, you know, if if it wasn't the case, maybe we wouldn't, they wouldn't get the funding that they that they um, that they have been able to get. But his vision is that if you create something that the community can get involved in, and they can, I mean, the positioning of the rabbin is 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 like the wreck. It's, it's there's not many stadiums that position that centrally in a town. So I mean, you've got a beautiful port in, in Van. You walk across the road, you know, 500 meters, and you're at the stadium. So it's it's very much on a Friday night. It, everything is revolved around you know coming down to the port, enjoying some drinks, going out for dinner, being with your friends, going to watch the game, and they've created this sort of uh, Friday night atmosphere that um, that gets the whole town involved, and uh, and people absolutely love it. And it, it must be very valuable, actually, for Pro D to have its own in terms of broadcasting and and, and fixture scheduling, what have you. Pretty much to have its own space. I I, I know I, I know the the, the the top fourteen occasionally play a game on a Friday, but, but it's very occasional, isn't it? I mean, that's Pro D Pro territory that Friday night and the game on the Thursday night. So it's it's treated as as equal almost yeah. in, in terms of its scheduling. Yeah, exactly. I think it's it's great. I mean, yeah, pretty uh, top fourteen very very rarely play on a Friday night, and then you get your, the big game on a Thursday night, and then uh, all the other games played on a on a Friday. So um, yeah, it's great that they've got that slot that they can they can own and they can um, you know then taper it to their specific needs that they want to um, want to try and push across. Mm-hmm. And uh, so far, it's yeah, it's it's worked tremendously well. So, Nick, you'll still have um, a lot of, um, of of former playing buddies and so on, still playing in the Premiership, I'm sure. Um, and I, I'm very interested to know what you make of what's going on on this side of the channel in terms of the Premiership. We've you've mentioned obviously the three clubs going bust, but where's it gone wrong? Do you think you know what? What is the uh, what are, what are the issues that you that you really detect? I mean, some people would say that the game has been living beyond its means because it doesn't have the means that, in terms of either broadcast revenue or sponsorship revenue or the support of local municipalities as it does in France. But you know, do do you do you think that it is really a question of it living beyond its means and 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 actually not being very well organised either? Yeah, I must say. You know, from uh, from the outside, from yeah, outside looking in, I, I'm extremely worried about the state of affairs of of um, of English rugby at the moment. Um, there's a lot of uh, negative press around around not just um, sort of the clubs, but the game itself. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, press at the moment with with regards to uh, um, sort of you know these head knocks and um, injuries and um, and so as a result, uh, you, you know, participating numbers have have completely dropped down, um, and now you're seeing three massive clubs go bust. Um, that's setting a sort of shockwave through the through the through the through all the other clubs as to how are they gonna you know how are they not gonna 
um, um, not going to find themselves in the same situation. And so the problem the problem is that players have such short careers that they want to try and maximise their potential, maximise their earnings as quickly and as fast as they can. But some of the you know some of the contracts that players are getting, I don't think are sustainable in terms of you know clubs and being able to continue down that that road so there's definitely something that needs to be needs to be done i i know obviously the welsh um the welsh clubs have uh, have taken the first step into implementing what they believe is going to fix their their situation financially but yeah everything everything to me at the moment just seems like it's a fight um against against each other is there is there much coverage of it in france or doesn't it get much of a mention <laughs> uh, well it, it, when when big you know the big clubs uh, folded and yeah there was obviously a lot of um a lot of press around it there but they you know do like to compare it to <laughs> the success of the french and say well you know mm. the english are struggling but the french look at us we're amazing we uh, look at our our, our numbers are growing. Our numbers uh, are increasing. With um, with even at youth level, the the, the numbers are increasing. Um, the spectators are increasing. The the TV rights are increasing. So yeah, they've obviously got it right. At the end of the day, it comes down to the spectacle, really, doesn't it? And are spectators in England getting their money's worth from a game of of Premiership rugby? Is it is it interesting enough? Is it um, entertaining enough? And when I watch a Premiership game at the moment, um, it, it to me it's not that entertaining. I mean, in France, you come if you come to a, a game in France, just the the match day um, spectacle is so much more alive, entertaining, vibrant. You know, you've got the bands playing, you've got music constantly you've got people jumping up and and down in the um in the stands um the whole experience is so much more um energetic whereas i don't know whether it's just the type of uh, human um english people are they're maybe a little bit more reserved or sort of um uh intrinsic but you know they're not the, the the match day experience just isn't as alive as what you experience here. How, how do you how how have the French seem to? I mean, I speak from a position of ignorance. I don't, I don't speak French for for a start, but it seems to me that somehow the the the, the French clubs at French club rugby has captured a spirit of um, of deep community identity and deep community expressions of deep community pride which are only really mirrored in England, apart from one or two isolated areas. I mean, the Southwest, obviously, without big premiership football, is is a rugby area. Insofar as there is a rugby area in, in, in England, that's it. There's a pocket in the East Midlands of Northampton and Leicester. Leicester is a bit of an outlier because it has teams all over the place in, in variety of sports. But it doesn't seem that the community identity has been has grown or taken root in England in the professional game, 
in the way it has in France. Is it, do, do you detect any truth in that rambling nonsense at all? Or was that just rambling nonsense? No, I think... Um... The second. <laughs> <laughs> Most of it was rambling nonsense, but you said there is some sense. There is some sense to what you're trying to you're trying to say. I I actually think that ever since the game has become professional, um, that sort of uh, that community, um, you know, that deep ingrained sort of uh, community feel has completely um, drifted away. Um, you know, if you think about back in the days where it was Bath, Bristol. Gloucester, uh, like in the early, early days, just on the limit when it did start becoming professional, you know, you played for your one club and that was it. And um, that's when you did have that really strong community uh, feel. But now there's, um, you know, players um, come and go. And, uh, you know, I think that sort of... um, yeah, that's disappeared quite a lot. Whereas in France, even though they probably get a lot more turnover of of players, that the the actual supporters in that area are so fiercely like supportive of their of their team that um, yeah, they've just got that base that uh, that makes it all so much more successful. Yeah. And 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 also, I mean, we we know we know, of course, that France's French clubs, certain French clubs, have had their own. Was style, Worcester style, financial issues. Not not as terminal as those appear to be, but we've seen what happened in Biarritz, and and you know they've had a whole bag of problems for some years now. We saw what happened at Bourgoin. Um, we we've seen big clubs like Dax go plummeting down through the leagues and now bouncing back up. And Grenoble today, Chris, and, they've just been relegated. They were in the playoffs, weren't they? They've been relegated to National. One because of financial irregularities. Some, yeah, they can't show that their sons had that. You, you, the French game just seems to be able to absorb those those financial blows in a way that the English club rugby um, is struggling to do. I mean, it, it, it's just it's just shedding teams at the moment. It's not as a, it's not as there's anything underneath that can replace them. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean that that as well. But you look at sort of. Um... You know, if you're an investor looking at buying, say, Wasp, for instance, what what is attracting you to to buy that club? There's not a huge amount. You know, you're taking on a, a shitload of debt. Um, you don't own your stadium. You don't have the local uh, sort of governments backing you. And so as an investor, it's not a very attractive investment. Whereas in France, um, you you've already got the infrastructure in place where you're going to get the TV rights. You're going to get, uh, you know, most of the clubs have got a good solid foundation of support already put in place. Um, and so a new investor for me will always come in and, and take over a club in France because the potential is, is there to be able to grow it and to be able to, and to be able to create something behind it. Whereas, I just don't see that sort of potential in any of the clubs um, that have gone down in the Premiership at the moment. It's it's just too risky. And Nick, I think a part of that as well is the fact that um, you know, even though you know Chris and Brent are right about the the clubs who've gone bust in France or not bust, but have 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 been relegated or whatever because of uh, financial irregularities or whatever, that the regulation there is much much stricter, so they get in earlier. And the club will be relegated, and then it will 
learn its lesson, hopefully, and then it will bounce back. And as you say, an investor will will sort of look yeah, at it. Yes, right. this is viable. Yeah. Yeah. Nick, do you think that the state of the Premiership at the moment, obviously, when you were um, in your early early seasons at Clermont, there were calls for you or Stefan Armitage or whatever to be allowed to play for England despite the um, law that was in place. Do you think the current state of the English Premiership is all the more reason for players to be allowed to play in France or rather the opposite in that you mentioned that the Premiership as a spectacle isn't great to watch? I guess allowing players to then go abroad, which they inevitably would do, would probably diminish that spectacle even more. So is that more re- all the more reason to keep them in the country as well? Yeah, in, in my opinion, you know, I never really uh, held any grudges against um, against Stuart Lancaster when he didn't choose to to select me and me and Stefan. You know, before we decided to to go over to France, we knew the rules. Um, I thought I think it, it probably would have been a good thing if uh, he had maybe brought us into the the training squad. Because that would have um, helped with you know competition and pushing the guys a little bit, a little bit more. Um, but I definitely don't think that um, they should be, they should be opening up the the rule book and changing things to to allow players to go out and play in, in France. I just think that's going to be detrimental for the English game. It's going to be detrimental for the for the international team. Um, you know, as a player you've got to weigh up what's important in your life um is it to to play for england is it to experience new cultures experience new things is it to you know stay closer to your family those are all the questions that players currently have got to ask themselves but i definitely if i was involved in the rfu would not be allowing players to play in france but still play for england it's interesting, though, that with the regulations that the French have got about the number of French players that they've got to have in in each in each club side, I just wonder actually how big the market would be for England England players. You you know you might say that you you know maybe you'd lose ten possibly fifteen, but you know more than that. Yeah, I mean it's a very good point. Um, you know the 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 GIF rule that they've implemented in France. I think it's now um, seventeen. Uh, next season, it's going to be 17 um, Ajif players in a match day squad. So, I mean, the 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 um, the market for international players in general is bloody tough to to crack. You know, there's there's lots and lots of very very good players um, trying to come to France and get into a French club, but it's it's impossible. I mean, um, you know, French clubs do obviously love to get. You know, big name players from New Zealand and uh, and uh, South Africa and um, Australia over, and your Fijian wings. Well, and your Fijian wings, exactly. You probably pick them up a bit cheaper, and, than, uh, and your Georgian props. <laughs> yeah, you pick them up a bit cheaper though. Um, but yeah, so I mean, there's 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 not many spaces for English guys. So if you do get a chance to do it, I would say you know take it with open arms because. Um, it's not as if you you're going to get it later on in in your career. If that's what you want to do and you want to go over to France, then um, then yeah, snap it up whilst you can because I don't think uh, you know if it doesn't happen this time, it won't happen later. There's every chance of the two Willis brothers playing against each other in the top fourteen final as we stand at the moment. That's difficult to turn down. I mean, and who would have believed that nine months yeah. ago when we started the yeah. season with Boss? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a good point. But I mean, you know, he's made his uh, he's made his decision. It's a, if I was in his position, it would I would probably have made the same decision. You're playing for, if not the best team in uh, in France um, with the players that they've got in that team. It's it's tough to be able to it's tough to turn down a contract. Mm. Like go back to uh, a team in England where he's basically you know relying on um, playing for England. Uh, each year and um, yeah I mean I think he's made the right decision I'd sort of argue also that it's pretty tough in many respects for the RFU and the Premiership having sort of made such a balls up of the English game that players like Willis Tom you know uh, Jack Willis find themselves having to go to Toulouse and that they then having sort of created a wasteland in England of the competitive structure then say to a player, right, you, you know, you go over there to make a living because the club that you played for is bust, but you're not playing for England, you know. Yeah, yeah I mean, his case is obviously a very uh, particular particular case. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's difficult, really. I do think that um, the RFU need to explore uh, these central contracts um, it will give them a lot more control over their over their top um, their top players, um, and it will make it financially um, easier for a player to be able to turn down some of the lucrative deals that they um, they're getting offered uh, offered in France. Um, you know, the RFU still is one of the the most profitable uh, unions in in not anymore. Not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> no. <laughs> Nick, just one more um, question on that. I'm interested by the fact that you say that if players were allowed to go to France, then it would negatively impact the English game. Um, I'm guessing by that you mean domestic English game. Do you also mean national for the national t- side as well? Because, well, I'm being presumptuous here, but I would probably say you would feel you're a better player having played in France as well as having played in England. Yeah, I definitely said. Well, I definitely became a better a better player having uh, having come out of France, but. Um... I'll, I'll give you an example. Is that the, the first year that uh, that um, the year that I came over to, to Claremont in in uh, fourteen fifteen, Jonathan Davies also signed at the same time. Now he was uh, essentially contracted with um, with the Welsh uh, Rugby Union, but there was always like conflicts between um, you know letting him go during weeks that uh, he shouldn't have, like whether he's going to come back on a Wednesday and play for Claremont on a Saturday and then go back to Wales the next week because Wales had a break during the Six Nations. And there was, it, it was always just such a, it was like a draining, a draining sort of conversation, draining process the whole time. And the problem is that if you, if you allow players to do that, then the RFU just don't have, um, they don't have control over, over their players. The French clubs obviously paying them a huge amount of money. They want them to play for, for for their team on a Saturday, and so yeah, conflict wise, it's just a sense. What 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 do you expect to um to find in Bayonne, Nick? Do, do you? Uh, I mean, I mean, you you have you'd have had some experience of basketball rugby. I mean, those of us who've watched a bit of YouTube still treasure the memory of the great Imanal Aranordiki getting in a huge great fight in a in a bus derby and a bloke running on from the. The, the the crowd to help out and it turned out to be his dad 
it is it is a particular it is a particular flavor isn't it basque rugby it is i mean uh yeah in terms of um you know you talk about those having an identity as a team and it doesn't get stronger than uh, than down there in the south uh, the southwest that is proper rugby country is i don't think you find many football clubs um in and around uh, in and around the basque country uh, and i've been lucky enough to play against both um you know Biritz. we played against them in uh, in the hiding back then in the hiding cup so played against the likes of Harry Nordiki and stuff so played there at their stadium uh, played at Bayonne as well, so experienced um, experienced that uh, that as well. But I think ever since they've had you know that little bit of success coming up from the Pro D last year, and um, and now having been as successful as they have been this year in terms of the you know the before I was down there for the interview phase of getting the job, and um, their you know goal for the season was just to stay up into the top fourteen. So. The fact that they almost pushed for a playoff spot and they've now got Champions Cup is is a huge thing for them. And um, yeah, every game that I've managed to watch this year, um, you see that they've you know, every single game this season has been sold out. Um, they've got the whole town behind them. Um, you know, the Basque singing. Uh, that's what I mean about that sort of whole spectacle of of match day experience. It's it's just that gets your, you know, endorphins going. And, um, and yeah, so I'm very, very excited to get down there and get stuck into it and experience that firsthand. Um, I'm apprehensive, apprehensive at the same time, a uh, bit, bit scared because it's obviously a completely new environment to going into coaching. Um, uh, I've not, you know, obviously as a player, you do a lot of analysis as it is, but not so much hands-on coaching with, with players. I'm going to be coaching players that I've played with in the past uh, as well so it's going to be interesting um, trying to trying to you know keep those relationships going without getting too close to the players um, you know you've got to keep that professional sort of distance as well so yeah it's going to be an interesting uh, interesting period but I'm very much looking forward to it Were, were you still at Bath Nick when um, when, when they played Beeritz in the in the in the champ in the Heineken semi final or the Champions Cup semi final round the corner in San Sebastian or had you already gone? No, I was. I actually travelled that day um, with the team. I was twenty fourth twenty fourth man when yeah. yeah we just lost that game. But yeah, that was uh, that was pretty amazing. They they this year they um, unfortunately Bayon lost to Poe in that in that game uh, that they played in that stadium this year, but. Um, yeah, that was a great memory that uh, that I had from a young age, sort of getting to experience that. Yeah, I remember David Flatman saying that Beerich weren't really that good. You know, Aaron Ordeke could play a bit at number eight, and you know they were pretty tough up front. But he said there was nothing there apart from that bloody number nine Yashvili, who he, <laughs> who just won games on his own. I mean, you were a, a really skillful, intuitive kind of player. He was he was weird, wasn't he? I mean, he didn't have any legs. He had like two matchsticks and could kick the ball miles. It was. He was he uh, a, a true original, I think. Yeah, he was. Uh, he's always, you know, when you talk about Biritz's, um, Biritz's uh, glory days, him and Harry Nordicke are, are right to the top of that list. And um, yeah, I think he's still pretty heavily involved in uh, in in things down there.
Nick, we've got about 15 minutes before um, I know you need to go. I'd like to sort of tap into a few more memories from your rugby career, if I can. First of all, through the Random Rugby 15, which is the 15 quick fire question section, if that's okay with you. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> awesome. Let's get going with that then. Nickname. Um, my nickname, well, in England, it was Bendy. Mm-hmm. In England, in France, um, funny enough, uh, <laughs> it was Tamer. <laughs> Pourquoi? <laughs> because because they say Nick Tamer is it? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Wow! That that, that surprisingly was uh, was um, was uh, something that stuck. Funny enough, for, throughout yeah. the whole was at uh, at Clermont, I would come in and say Ça va Tamer? Ça va Tamer. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny <laughs> best rugby memory oh my best rugby memory's got to be um well i said i i always say winning the top 14 um with claremont in 2017 but my other best rugby memory was um back in the schoolboy days of Chatham college when we when we won uh, roslyn park sevens um against wellington and uh, we beat you know they, they had a star-studded outfit of haskell Tom Evans, um, they and we were sort of the mighty ducks, and we managed to we managed to beat them. So that was a fantastic memory as well. Why would anyone take any pleasure in beating James Haskell? <laughs> <laughs> I just I can't I can't work it out. <laughs> <laughs> Most embarrassing rugby memory. Most embarrassing rugby memory. Probably something happened fairly recently. Um, what well, two years ago? We lost the. Uh, we lost the semi-final to Brits. It, it's a good lesson, life lesson as well, is not to not to gloat because with five minutes left, you know we were we were like twelve points up or something like that, and I started uh, mouthing off a bit to uh, a few of them, the Brits players, uh, saying "Have fun in the Pro D next year," and uh, they went on and won it. And that that same player, that same player, ran straight up to me before any of his teammates and uh, and let me know that. Uh, they, and that was pretty embarrassing, to be honest. <laughs> I'm going to be a bit cheeky here and sort of when I read that question and I knew obviously you'd be answering the the, the day that you got to Alangied would pop, <laughs> pop to mind. And I, I wouldn't call it an embarrassing rugby memory because, well, I think the conclusion came like, bloody hell, this guy can take a few hits. How do you <laughs> look back on that day? Um it's funny. I'm, I'm probably more. I'm probably better known for for that YouTube um, that YouTube like two million than, I, than I am for anything that I've done on my on the on the pitch that's been good. So yeah, I mean uh, that was that was a day that um, at the time I was uh, you know wanted to forget rather rather rapidly. Um, but looking back on it, you know those those are the things that you're going to love to show your your kids and your grandkids when you get older and say. And say that you know, even if you get knocked down, then uh, you get back up and you go again. And um, yeah, that's what I tried to do that day. Who hits harder, Manu or Alessana? <laughs> oh, they both hit like girls. <laughs> <laughs> Pre-game tune, probably, probably Henry actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he hit you. He got you at one point in another game. He got he? he got me a few times there. Uh... Yeah, uh, pre-game tune. Pre-game uh, ACDC, um, back to black. Nice. Post-game meal. Post-game meal. Uh, post-game meal. I always loved, uh, after a few hard battles against Gloucester at the wreck, our chef, um, 
Jerry Quinn, he used to do a, a fantastic lamb shank. Um, so yeah, that was the post meals, a nice lamb shank is uh, is up there. Yes, yes. Best player you've played against. Best player I've played against. Um, oof, that's difficult. Probably, probably Dupont. Best player you've played with. Best player I've played with is um, Isia Toyawa. Nice. Favorite player right now. Um, I like uh, Freddie Stewart. Intermac as well. I like. Rugby idol. Christian Cullen. Favourite stadium? Marseille Michelin. Favourite gym exercise? Uh, Favourite gym exercise is probably uh, curl and press. Oh, nice. (laughs) Very gym (laughs) exercise. (laughs) Brendan's now pretending he knows what that is. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard rumours of it. (laughs) Kill two birds with one stone. <laughs> Occupation if rugby didn't exist. Uh, golf caddy. <laughs> caddy, not player. Yeah, not good enough to be a player. Which player would you like to caddy for? Oh, um, skeleton. <laughs> <laughs> no, as an aside, I'm guessing you've all seen the live PGA merger today that came out. That was a bit of a shock. I didn't see that actually. I actually had a, I actually had a, me- a message from uh, Laurie Cantor, who's obviously Bath-based um, players playing on the Live Tour, and he, he invited me out on the, to one of the Live uh, competitions on in July. Um, but no, I didn't. I didn't see that actually. Yeah, they've, they've well, I haven't read about it extensively, but it seems like they've merged completely. Which the sound is well, a well, golf, basically. Yeah. Yeah, Greg just... Norman's now the richest man in the world. Oh, it's yeah. unusual for golf to go where the money is, isn't it? It is. It's absolutely unprecedented. I was flabbergasted to read the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure Scott plays some soothing music in the background now, so just to ease yeah. the pain. Well, it's going to be very, very interesting. Um, so three more questions. Superstitions, Nick. Superstitions. Uh, I always wear the same uh, boxer shorts um, for each game. Is that why is no one ever got? Is that why no one ever got near you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that the same pair of box shorts for seventeen years? Uh, oof. no, it has it has changed a couple okay, of times. Sure, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, rugby law, you would change. Rugby law, I would change. I would, uh, I would allow. Um, the fullback to call for a for a fair catch for up and under in the twenty two. What does that mean? As in, just you're not allowed to compete. As in, you're not allowed to compete. <laughs> that would take away take away the horrendous tactic of any French team putting up box kicks and and bombs on the, the opposition twenty two meter line or forty meter line. <laughs> This isn't a personally motivated law change at all, though. This is all like fair game for everyone, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and lastly, best thing about working in rugby? Best thing about working in rugby is um, probably the uh, the places that I've that I've managed to to visit throughout my throughout my career. Um, you know, being able to travel around the world and and play and do something that you are very passionate about is 
it's tough, you know. It's not. It's. I've been very thankful to to do something that I'm passionate about, and uh, and having travelled around the world doing it at the same time as um, yeah, that's probably the best thing about it. That's a great answer. Great answer. Awesome. That was really good, Nick. Thank you for doing that. Uh, we've got about Nick's going to be in problem in trouble with Ollie Barkley, though. You realise, don't you? Because when Ollie was on, he was asked the best player he ever played with. Without hesitation, he said Nick Abendon. No way. And he didn't even didn't even give him a mention, mate. <laughs> <laughs> you're the best kicker. No, no, he said you were the best player. Oh, he's the best kicker. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there you go, Nick. You've got a, a new most embarrassing rugby memory for getting Ollie yeah. Barkley. <laughs> Have you had any of Ollie Barkley's newly marketed rum yet, Nick? I actually haven't. No, I I did see it though, and uh, I've um, you know I did one of those those sly sort of comments saying, "Oh, this looks nice," hoping that he might send me a bottle, but he still hasn't. So maybe uh, this won't help that I didn't mention him. And uh... exactly. you're definitely not getting a bottle now. <laughs> yeah. I try to edit this favorably and send it to him so that you get to it. Um, five minutes ish left now, Nick. I wanted to ask you. A couple of things. One was the rugby paper published a few months ago, your views around the Finn Russell to Bath transfer. And I just wanted to hear it from you in person, obviously on paper, one of the best, if not the form 10 in the world at the moment. You said you weren't sure it's a great signing. Just outline your hesitancies there. Well, my hesitancies, um, They've probably changed a little bit since I did that. Um, did that art, did that article because from the looks of things, part sort of towards the back end of the season looked like they, you know, are making good progress in the right direction um, uh, under under the new coach. So I think him going in there, um, having had that success at the end of the season and taking it into next season, will be will be uh, very beneficial. My hesitancies simply are the fact that, um, you know, his game, uh, his game revolves around, you know, speed, speed of ball, um, space, uh, spatial awareness and instinct, really. And uh, I've played at the rec for 10 years and it's can be one of the worst pitchers you, you'll ever you know, have the um, pleasure of, of playing against from about you know November through to the end of uh, end of March, sometimes even in April. So, um, whether he's going to be able to use that rugby talent of his um, in the way that he likes, I don't know. Um, you know, the, the the coach there is has got sort of that South African um, style of, uh, of play uh, to his name with a lot of, a lot of um, pressure game kicking. Uh, and so, yeah, I hope that he's going to be used to the, his abilities and he's not going to be, you know, changed into, into sort of your typical South African fly half. Um, the other thing is, I just think it's a ludicrous amount of money to play, to pay one player in a time where, uh, you got clubs. Um, you got clubs, sort of, you know, folding left, right, and centre. I think you know uh, that's a, that's an obscene amount of money to pay to play one player. At least if you pay that amount of money to a player in France, you're sort of covered by the fact that if they do get injured, um, 
you get a certain amount of their contract paid for by by the government because they go on a, um, something called arrêt de travail because um, they got injured in the workplace, and so the government then takes on a, 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 a big proportion of their of that contract. Whereas in England, it's a huge risk to to pay someone that amount of money. He does a knee injury in the first week, and you've got to continue then paying his contract the whole of uh, the duration of. So yeah, I, I just think that um, you know, as much as I absolutely love him, he's one of my favourite players um, to watch, and he seems like a. Uh, a hell of a, a, a guy as well. So um, I hope he does do really well because I'd love to see Bath back up in the top echelons of of English rugby. Um, but yeah, to me personally, I just think that it's um, it's a bit a, a bit of a risky uh, a risky signing. It happened with Dan Carter, didn't it? When he went to Perpignan, he he he, exactly. uh, he bust himself in. I don't know. First half of the first game was it? And that exactly. was it. Uh, I, I cannot believe that you are suggesting for a second that the surface at the recreation ground, which is otherwise known as the River Avon, as you know, <laughs> is in any way inferior to that dump of a place in Paris where Russell has been playing for the last couple of years. <laughs> yeah, for maybe one game in July, it probably is about the same. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, that's another, another sort of example of Bath. Uh, I just feel so sorry for the situation they find themselves in with Bruce Craig and he's been for the last 15 well have a long 10 years um, campaigning to try and change the recreation ground to something which will create a huge buzz around the town and you know bring in maybe sponsors from different areas and create that sort of identity again around around the team but he's just got to, the, the council just uh you know, constantly fighting against him, and if you don't have local councils and authorities on your side, then nothing's ever going to get past it. Yeah. How, how did, as a matter of interest, how did Brian Ashton ever manage to coach you guys to play some pretty attractive rugby and some quick rugby and quick thinking rugby and instinctive rugby um, on the record? Did he teach you to levitate or something? I don't, I don't know quite how he how he managed to do it. <laughs> Because as you know, he used to moan about that service more than anyone. He did. He did. Yeah. No. I yeah, back. We we did have some 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 great years of of attacking rugby. We we created this sort of you know this identity of of attacking from anywhere. And but like with any team, when you have great players around you, it makes things a lot easier, doesn't it? So we had we had some fantastic players and Butch James, Michael Claus, and Zolly Barkley, Ollie Barkley. Um, was uh, Ollie Barkley yeah. there. <laughs> he was really good, wasn't he, Ollie? Yeah, he was our top player. Well, it must be he one of the best player. Well, he, must, well, he must be one of the best players you ever played with. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Um, so yeah, I mean, um, yeah, we, we had a we had an outstanding team then. Nick, just before you go, I'm going to put you on the spot very, very quickly. Um, could I get? Obviously, you mentioned Freddie Stewart and your admiration for him. I'd love to hear your starting back three for England um, if the World Cup final was tomorrow and. Somehow England were in it. Yeah, I mean Freddie Stewart would definitely be at fullback. Um, I like Aaron Barkley. Barkley. <laughs> yeah, I just like uh, I like what he can what he can uh, what he can bring in terms of an attack, attacking sense with his speed. Um, and on the other wing. I still, uh, I still, I still love Noel as well. I think uh, he's a he's a great player as well. 
Um, so I'd probably go those. Oh, actually, no, I'd get obviously Anthony Watson in there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was going to press you for someone other. Knowles ruled himself out of the World Cup. I think you may have seen. Um, so I was going to press you for someone other than him, and I thought it might be Anthony Watson. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Chris, did you say Ollie Barkley? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I, in fact, he's in all three positions. <laughs> He's that talented. He's one of the best players I've ever seen. <laughs> oh dear. Right, Nick. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, yeah, enjoy the rest of the time in the, in the UK. Um, and yeah, all the best with the early stages of Bayonne. I hope it all goes well out there. Um, and yeah, it's been great talking to you. Thanks a lot for having me on, Nick. It's, uh, it's been enjoyable to go down memory lane. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. That was great. That was good fun. Thank you. Good luck down in Bayonne. Awesome, Nick. Take care. Thanks. A slight change of tone now as this rugby paper was devastated by some very sad news at the weekend as we learned of the passing of the founder and editor-in-chief of the rugby paper, David Emery. David founded the rugby paper in 2008 and it quickly became the number one rugby newspaper in the country. And fair to say the rugby paper and its future owes its entirety to him. Nick. I'm not lucky enough to say that I knew him particularly well because I only joined the rugby paper a year and a bit ago. So, Nick, I'll sort of hand over to you um, on this one. Yeah, I mean, I um, I worked with... David um, had the idea for the rugby paper and the rugby paper exists purely because of his um, vision for it and... Um, the tenacity with which he brought to everything that he did and the savvy that he brought to it as well is what got the rugby paper up and running. Um, I joined it at, at the outset and um, had the privilege of, of working with him from that point. And at the out, at the beginning, obviously, you know, any startup is uh, is vulnerable. There was uh, no, you know, no big sponsor or anything else of the sort behind the rugby paper. And David made it clear from the outset that um, it would have to wash its face in terms of sales in order to survive. And um, he didn't make, you know, any any sort of grand predictions. He said, we're, we'll we'll see how it goes for six months and uh, and so on. Um, and. It got up and running, but the thing that really got the rugby paper um, moving in terms of circulation was probably the 2009 Lions Tour. Um, so that was the, we started in the September of 2008 and the 2009 Lions, uh, Lions Tour was six, seven months later. So um, that, you know, gave as Lions Tours do, that gave the paper real traction. And um, it sort of, it's it's gone from there. But uh, the vision was, was David's and the ability to juggle all the aspects of not only being a, a, a great editor, because he's, you know, I mean, I, I, I mentioned, you know, in terms of encouragement for young journalists, and older journalists such as myself, and so on. You know, he's um, he'd always he had a, a calm head and a very clear um, message all of the time. And the rugby paper, you know, went um, you know from strength to strength really. 
and the his ability to be able to juggle all the balls that were associated with not only dealing with with print but also you know with journalists with distribution with running not only the rugby paper but the non-league football paper and so on you know he was a um he was he's a remarkable man in terms of his ability to 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 keep all that um uh, uh turning over successfully it really was all that as well brendan wasn't it because it, nick mentioned the non-league football paper there's the league paper the cricket paper and then the rugby paper as well and that's added to the fact that he's been an editor in chief of some sort because he was at the daily express beforehand for 40 odd years or something he was an absolute a Fleet Street legend before he almost took up this in what he laughably called retirement. I mean, you know, he ran an absolute powerhouse of a sports desk at the Daily Express when it could have some reasonable claim to be the you know the best paper in the in the world. Um, he was a, he was a remarkable character. He was he was in one way he was tabloid to his boots. He loved screaming headlines. He made he liked breaking stories. He liked ruffling feathers. He stood by his reporters who did that. But he also had this remarkable sort of broadsheet appreciation of he wanted definitive match reports. He wanted stats. He wanted long reads. He wanted features. He wanted nostalgia. He wanted to cover schools, students, women's, varsity, everything. So, you know, he, he really was a sports enthusiast. He, uh, I, I never knew what his favourite sport was. And, that, and you know, I, I don't know if it's football, cricket, rugby, racing. I've got no idea. He just loved it all. Uh, and he made a very good stab at producing Britain's really equivalent of Le Keep or La Gazetta um, with First Sport. Uh, or was it Sport First? I always forget. Um, and like all these things, in the end, that didn't quite take off because Britain is so horribly um, devoted to football that it's very, very difficult to actually run a commercially successful all-sports newspaper or magazine. But he came closer than most. So he's a remarkable bloke, and he carried all that experience, all that overall knowledge and love of everything into his little empire of specialist sports papers, of which I think the rugby paper and the non-league football paper were his pride and joy. Chris, anything to add to that? Well, um, look, Nick and Brendan have been associated with the, the, the rugby paper for, for far longer than me. Thank the Lord, I hear the readership saying. Um, but it's uh, I I would I would I would try to paint his achievement on a broader canvas. Really, I mean they 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 said everything that reasonably needs saying. I think about his 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 achievement with the rugby paper, but he's made a a, a wonderfully brave and defiant stand on behalf of print journalism. Print journalism, which has had. Um, Inevitable in many ways with with with, with online and, and and you know the internet world stuff that we saw coming, but maybe some of us of a certain age didn't quite see how quickly it would take everything over. Um, but it sort of didn't take the rugby paper over. I know we haven't, you know, a, a, an online presence, and and so we should. But he had a tremendous commitment to physical print journalism, a publication that you could go and buy in the newsagent and sit down and read, knowing that, you know, it had a start, a middle and an end. 
Um, you might say, well, that's a bit of a throwback. It's it's a blast from the past or it's it, it's just a, an exercise in nostalgia. But I actually think it's more than that. I think that the rugby paper has done pretty well for itself um, by the standards of, 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 of startups, as Nick was saying earlier. It's a difficult trick to pull off. And I think insofar as that trick could be pulled off in the internet age, David did it. And it's an astonishing effort, and and it's a hell of a lot more to do do with him than it is to to do with us lot, really, because he was the guy who decided a it could be done, that he wanted to do it, that he saw a future for it, and that if there was enough enthusiasm and energy and expertise behind it, it might be able to, as Nick says, wash its face in an age where most print publications are of it in mud and not looking too good. And and for that alone, leaving aside it, he was a really good bloke who knew his sport, loved it all, knew a lot about everything, uh, but enjoyed talking to people who he felt might know different things to him. He was always open to new ideas, all that stuff. So leaving aside the personal great bloke that he was, I have to say that in this day and age, what he achieved with these projects has been magnificent and and I, I thank him for it for sure yeah it's a, it, it, you know I, I i think speak for us all says was a, an, a real privilege an absolute privilege to uh to work with him yeah. Yeah. It, yeah um if i could actually jump in there weirdly enough obviously like i say i don't know him anywhere near as well as you guys do um but chris you mentioned the openness to new ideas this whole podcast came from it was January 2021 and I turned up at the rugby paper I'd been in brief contact with David just to say oh I you know just to say here I am I'll do some work for you guys and I wanted to show up with this idea of a podcast for the rugby paper because I knew the rugby paper didn't have one David had no idea he thought I was showing up to do some just freelance go to match matches write reports etc and he didn't know anything about me or my podcasting experience ability or anything like that and I just put forward the idea of a podcast and almost straight away, he was on board. And I was, you know, in the space of a very quick half an hour, all of a sudden, the rugby paper had a podcast. And I, you guys didn't know that, um, but it was almost <laughs> with David. David, the, the the king of rolling dice, snapped his fingers. And there it was that um, the rugby paper had a podcast. Brendan, you're laughing. You didn't know that, did you? No, I knew nothing about it until I got an email. So, sorry. Sorry. And he, he said, do you want to do a podcast? Is, is this a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Your face is on YouTube, Chewy, for the world to see. Oh, well, no, I never go on there for fear of seeing something I don't want to see. <laughs> <laughs> Is that in reference yeah. to the comment section or your own face? Uh, no, I, I, I never, I never, I never read fan mail. It's rubbish. <laughs> you, you know, it's just so narcissistic. Especially <laughs> <laughs> when you write it yourself. <laughs> I, and, yeah, and, and also, I only have so many friends that I can ask to write this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, if listeners, readers of the Rugby Paper have any mer- memories, stories about David, do get in touch on Twitter or Instagram or by email um it's always great to hear those sorts of examples of how he touched people's lives and obviously it goes without saying that a wholehearted thank you to david we offer our condolences to his family and to his loved ones and 
we can pledge to continue his phenomenal work in the form of the rugby paper in his honour. <laughs>